Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 17. Mrs. Lay at Sheremy's side in the lightless room. She coughed a few times, then emitted a strangled groan that Sheremy assumed was the sound of her trying to keep quiet. He could see nothing, but from the dull echoes of their gasping breath, he knew they were in a small room. And, logically, they must have emerged from the fireplace, presumably in the chamber above the cell. He whispered, do you know anything about the geography of Bedlam? Are you bleeding joking? Of course not. He nodded to himself. Stupid question, Jeremy. I believe this to be a room, he said. There should be a door. Let's stand up and feel for a wall. Move slowly with your arms outstretched. She grabbed his hand. I'm keeping one attached to you, she said. Good plan. He counted twenty paces forward before his left hand struck a wall. I have it, he said. Feeling forward, he detected a lintel, then a section of wall that moved. Wood, he said. A door. Kneeling down, he placed his face to the gap at the bottom of the door to see the faintest of glimmers. Light! Precious light at last! And the smell of kippers. There are people about he said, eating their suppers. We've got to move out if we's discovered. Yes, yes, but this is our single chance of escape. If we're noticed, what say we return to the chimney and climb up some more? She considered this suggestion, gripping his hand, squeezing it occasionally, as if to indicate the turning of mental cogs. I thinks you're right, she said, though she sounded anxious. Least unsafe of unsafe plans, eh? Exactly. Come on, we know we can do this now. We can. Goodness, she was a courageous woman. Many men of his acquaintance would be shaking in their boots if faced with this dilemma. I'll lead, he said. We'll go up to the top if we need to. And they did, to the very top. At midnight, Sheremy heard the ringing of distant bells... He poked his head out from the upper chimney stacks of Bedlam and looked out over a scene he did not recognise. Clambering out and clinging to a chimney stack with one hand, he pulled Mrs. to his side. The wind whipped at his clothes, moaning like ghosts all around them. Where are we? he asked. I think it's somewhere in Rotherhise, she replied. Oh, Jeremy, I don't like heights. Save me. She clung on to him as Jeremy studied the roof below. The night was dark, cloudy, although the moon was only a few days after full, its glow just visible behind tattered storm rack. He could see little. Hairy London was enshadowed and far, far below, almost invisible in night's gloom. He sniffed the air. It's been raining, he said. There's a squall brewing. We need to get off this damn roof. Hurry! All he could do was inch his way down the moss-covered roof, slipping and sliding in perilous fashion, until he reached a gutter where two roofs met. Not far now, he said, squeezing Mrs. Hand. 
We'll be in the hairy streets soon. Please. In this manner, clambering down drains and crawling along gutterways, they descended Bedlam's exterior. Hours passed. A Cherami knew he could hear bells chiming, including one he thought might be the old Sun Church clock on Horse Ferry Road. One in the morning, two in the morning. Across the river, he mused. What did you say? We need to cross the river, he told her. Get away from this miserable place, to safety. She clung to him, peering down at their final precipitous descent. Will we make it? He did not reply. Rain began falling from crow-black clouds as, like bedraggled cats, they inched their way to street level. At last, as the clock struck three, Jeremy felt hair caressing his legs. The street! They clung to one another, partly from joy, partly from relief, partly to shield themselves from the rain. We must find shelter now, Jeremy said. Pinhead lanthorns, arranged on strings, indicated the length of the thoroughfare in which they stood, which, he noticed, was titled Rotherhithe Street. We'll head for the riverbank, he said, which is not far away, and there we'll hopefully find a boat of some description. Hand in hand they hurried off, forcing a way through the thick black hair. The rain meant that local dandruff, lumps as large as dogs and sticky as glue, obstructed their process until, at the junction with Sovereign Crescent, they faced an impenetrable barrier of gunk. To either side, the hair grew thick as bramble, a formidable obstacle. This street will flood soon, Mrs. said. Worried, she gestured at a large building occupying the land between the Crescent and Globe Wharf. We could maybe ask a way through that place, eh? I think I knows it. She peered through the gloom at the signator hanging above the front door, which showed a cat's face. Yes, I does know it. I've had housing nearby. Are they friends of yours? Mrs. hesitated, an unreadable expression on her face. Acquaintances. They walked up to the building and knocked on the front door. But before waiting for a reply, Mrs. turned the handle and opened it, pulling Jeremy inside. Out of the rains at last, she said. Jeremy peered along the half-lit corridor in which they stood. He smelled perfume, heard voices upstairs, saw ancient oil vestings on canvas, all hung at random angles, as if by a blind person. Every felicitous image was of a cat. Two women approached, and Jeremy was astonished to see they had the heads of cats. Their ears clipped through to facilitate earrings of gold. Their clothes were minimal, damned minimal. No corsets, ample bosoms, sandales and lace comfits that showed their thighs. Most odd. Mrs. seemed to hesitate, so Jeremy said, Oh, we just wanted to... To pass through, ma'ams, Mrs. said. One of the catwomen touched Jeremy's shoulder preened her whiskers and said, You're a lovely-looking fella. Wanting a good time, were we? A what? Jeremy replied. Mrs. took him by the hand and said, uh, Not tonight, ma'ams. The catwoman hissed and said, I wasn't talking to you. He's mine. 
Jeremy said. A good time? They're night flyers, Mrs. whispered. Night, bed for money, you knows. Bed for... Suddenly the catwoman took Jeremy by the hand and pulled him to her, spinning on her heel as if dancing the jacaranda. He doesn't know, she giggled. He doesn't like the night. Perhaps he's never had a night. Jeremy frowned. You mean I may use your bed if I pay you? Yes, Jeremy shrugged. But we do not require lodgings. Bed for love, Jeremy gasped and pulled away from the catwoman. You mean appalling? He had no idea women could offer such services. Surely that was not love. In a firm voice, he said, I'm a seeker for the truth of love. You ladies seem to entertain very strange notions. We will have you. You can't escape. Not tonight, Mrs. cried, and Jeremy heard the fear in her voice. We only wanted to pass through to the river bank, he said. His voice sounded distant. Next thing he knew, he stood inside a warm chamberette, a four-poster domicillo before him, white-sheeted and draped with silken scarves. The catwoman, undressed now apart from her pantette, stared at him. You want me, she purred. I do, Jeremy replied, undoing his jacket. I'm Egyptian, offering all the exotic of the Nile. You can't resist. I don't want to resist. From some far-off eerie, a howl floated down, entering Jeremy's ears like a wisp of London fog. The catwoman's ears flattened against her head, and she crouched low. Jeremy turned to face the window. There was a crash as it opened, and then Mrs. poked her head through. Climb down the rope, she said, spell broken. Cold and scared, Jeremy ran over to see a rope dangling to street level, rain pouring. He leant out, swung himself over the sill, then took the rope in his hands and began letting himself down. From Mrs. just below came a second mournful howl. On the street he grabbed her, pulled her to him. You rescued me again. I knows them ladies, she muttered, though I didn't know they were in residence. Jeremy stared at her. The rain had washed away all the soot and flattened her hair against her head, revealing her beauty. Thank you, he said. I had no idea a woman of your class would be able to do such a thing. I've been much misinformed about the lower sectors of London society. That you has, Mrs. replied, her tone somewhat acid. Jeremy felt crestfallen. I can only apologize, he said. She grabbed his hand and pulled him away from the building. Apologies accepted. In moments they stood beside the river bank, the mighty and extensive width of the Thames before them. Far off, reflected in the muddy flow, Jeremy saw the lanthorns and curvettes of Northside hostelries, their jetties clunking with boats. We need a ferry over, he said. And quickly, Cat's Prow, he pointed east. There, he said, a large vessel. They ran along the hairy shore, tripping over the bank's floppy fringe, picking themselves up and wiping off the mud and then running on. Rain fell hard. 
Jeremy began to tire. Then the vessel, large, stately, gothic. Jeremy peered up to read its name. The Titanic, he said. Mrs. gasped. What? he asked. She sobbed, pulled him to her, so that he sheltered her from the rain. You knows the story, she said. Oh, that one. Yes, the ship that will sink after a terrible accident. You don't want to believe old wifey tales, came a voice from the deck. Jeremy looked up to see a fat, oilskin-smothered tar. Sir, come aboard. We're heading north side in half an hour. Jeremy glanced down at Mrs. Silent, fear in her eyes, she shook her head. But he said, we must, my dear. We've got to get north of the river. Don't worry, I'll protect you, for you're a valuable cargo indeed. Mrs. sighed. Very well, Jeremy. Velvine knew he was lucky. Unlike the overwhelming proportion of London's populace, he was not imprisoned by hair, for he could fly. At the beginning of the hairy plague, he had seen few Archimedean floating systems, with those flying owned either by the government or by the newspapers. But now, as Londoners rose to the challenge presented by the hare, a few more of them appeared, including a number stolen from London Zoo. So it was that Velvine was able to fly to the British Library and there inquire as to the whereabouts of Carl Jung. Seems he lives in Brooks Mews Mayfair, sir, said the young man, assisting him. Number 1B. Thank you, Velvine said. Here's a brocket for your trouble, he added, tossing a coin across. The lad caught it and smiled. It was no trouble, sir. Then put it in the charity box at once, Velvine said as he turned to leave. After a short flight to Mayfair, Velvine secured his machinora upon the roof of the embassy of Silverina, whereupon it changed to appear as a gaucho wielding a bolus. Satisfied, he clambered down the bearded walls of the building, then forged a path through street hair to Brooks Mews, where he knocked on Jung's front door. The man himself opened it. Good morning, he said. I am Velvine Orchardtide of the House of Orchardtide, said Velvine, bowing. I wonder if I might trouble you on a matter of some importance. Jung replied, Of course, and led him indoors. The house was clean, spacious and tidy, with a study at the back overlooking a chamomile lawn. A maidservant brought tea and cake, whereupon Velvine described the wager and his journey so far. To conclude, he said, Mr. Freud was less than useful in his analysis, so I decided to come to you. A wise decision, Jung said. Felvine lay back on Jung's couch and continued. Marx hinted that I had to understand the true nature of man before becoming authentic myself, while Freud said I abhorred myself. I shall look at this case from the perspective of human archetypes. Jung replied. Tell me about your family. Aware of what he had done wrong with Freud, Velvine presented an amended description of Orchardtide family life. Concluding with his banishment, then he said, 
Surely, love is a universal sensation, eh? I have spoken with the tribal elders of the Dogon Escarpature, and they know of love. I have spoken with the fish-headed priests of Pacific Cookslandia, and they know of love. I have spoken with the guardians of Vesta's lovely ladies, and even they say that the ladies they protect know love. There are four universal archetypes, Jung replied, closing the curtain so the room became gloomy, all of whom have some say in this question, spirit, trickster, rebirth, and mother. I am the trickster, Belvin said, I am sure. Jung turned off the candles, leaving only a natrio burner to provide illumination. I shall be the judge of that, he said. These archetypes manifest a number of recurring images which you see in your dreams. The shadow, the wise old man, the wise old woman, the maiden, the child, the mother. Are any of these familiar from your dreams? At once... Velvine remembered the terrible dreams he had on the night before his banishment. In a murmuring voice, he said, I am climbing up the steps of Orchard Tide Manor, but my mother is not there. She's gone far away, far away, and I will never know where she is. Now I am running terrified through the valleys of fir, but I am lost, and I do not know where my bedroom is, my safe, cosy bedroom. Now I'm playing shove badminton with my mother in the pear garden, but she is hidden behind a dark, flapping sheet hanging from a washing line, and I cannot see through the gloom. And now I am shaving myself, shaving myself until my skin is as pink as a strawberry blancmange. If I do not shave myself, I will become a terrible monster, out of control, a man who attacks women, and then I should have gone to jail. Now I am looping the loop in an implausibly avian Archimedean floating system, and now, uh, no, no, it's too shameful. Tell me what you see. Let the darkness of the room manifest your unconscious mind. Oh, God, no. I am showing Lilibet Spoonworthy my chest hairs. I'm unbuttoning my waistcoat, buttoning it again. Unbuttoning, buttoning, unbutton, button, unbutton. Jesus! There is blood on my fingers. Velvine sprang up and let out a great scream that reverberated around the study. Then he collapsed back upon the couch, spent as if the scream had taken away all his vital energies. Jung seemed unconcerned by the outburst. I see various archetypes within you, he said. Most strongly that of rebirth. You are a changed man, I think. But there is something else more important. In every woman there is an element of man that I called animus, while in every man there is an element of woman, the anima. You, Mr. Orchardtide, have no anima. No anima? Well, what's the meaning of this, eh? You manifest entirely animus. You see yourself as a male saviour, a man above the norm, yet a man with no mother or at least with a mother hidden forever behind a shadow. Do you not see? To become a whole man, you must integrate the opposing parts of yourself. But in you there are no opposing parts, save for conscious man who would be a hero, and unconscious boy who hates having to follow rules. 
but who does so for the sake of convenience? You betrayed yourself as you grew up, and all out of laziness. Is this all you have to tell me? What of love, eh? To know love, you must at least acknowledge the anima within. But you cannot do even that, for there is none. You are a lost cause, and you will lose the wager. But it has been very interesting hearing you speak, so I make no charge for my time. Velvine clamped down on his anger. Already he felt scornful of the Swiss charlatan. Do you write books, eh? he asked. Yes. Why, yes, I do. I would burn them. Jung stood up, took a card from his sideboard, scribbled a few words upon it, then handed it over. Velvine snatched it and stormed out of the house. For a while, he was so furious, all he could do was stamp on locks of hair and gnash his teeth. But after a while, he calmed down and returned to the Machinora. Then he read Jung's note. Wilhelm Reich, 69 Duck Lane, Soho. Very well, he told himself. I shall give these psychonaut chaps one last try. But if this right character fails me, I shall go off and do some journeying of my own. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. Mm -hmm.